Seeking for the help of the Lord, I direct your prayer for attention to 1 Kings chapter 18, reading for our text, verse 43, particularly the last part. The whole verse reads, And said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. As these words go again seven times, particularly just go again. The picture of Elijah praying and his servant looking and watching and for the answer to that prayer. There was a need for this time in Israel, this trial upon Mount Carmel. The need was because the children of Israel had turned to idolatry. The great extent of that is mirrored by how many of the prophets of Baal there were, the prophets of the groves, and how when the trial came, you think these are the children of Israel that are really thinking that Baal can hear them and can answer We think of when Elijah first spoke to them, they answered not a word. When he proposed to them the trial and what it should be, they said it is well spoken, obviously feeling that it was a test, a trial, that their God would stand. Israel had fallen to that extent, so far, so far from their God. What a reminder it is that God's children too may be left to idolatry, may be left to depart in a great measure from the Lord. As many times as we read the history of the children of Israel, ever since they came out of Egypt through the wilderness and then in the promised land, it reflects what the natural heart is like. And even seen in David in his fall, how far one can go, still keeping up, sometimes even a pretense of worship. In the days of Ezekiel, they were worshipping the true and living God and then turning and worshipping idols, doing both at the same time. Now, Lord, when he came, he testified he cannot serve God and mammon. But Israel, his ancient people, had tried to do that many, many times. The commandment is, Thou shalt have none other gods before me. But many times they did. They didn't fully cast away the Lord, but they joined him to idols. So there was a need for this time. There was also a preparation for this time. God did not just start where we started our reading this evening. He started first with what you might say seemed to have no relation to their idolatry or to what the Lord was going to do. He brought a famine. He brought a time when there was to be no rain upon the earth. Not just for the short time like we have had in recent months and has now turned to great rains in its season, but year after year, three And half a years, we can hardly comprehend what it must have been in that land to have no rain for that period. 
And yet the Lord was doing it for a purpose, to make the people ready to be brought to trial of their God and ready to hear and listen, even Ahab, to listen to Elijah. Yet what a reminder we have as Ahab meets Elijah. Ahab is blaming Elijah for all that has happened. Elijah is very clear. He says, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. He lays the charge clearly at Ahab, and yet Ahab has not, even after all of those three and a half years, he is not searching his own heart. He's not looking at the reason why he is blaming the Lord's servant. Why? Well, he would say because it was the Lord's servant that said that apart from his word there should not be rain nor dew for those years. <coughs> A preparation then in withholding of rain. Are we in a preparation for God's work ourselves? Maybe we might look at our lives and look at things that are happening and we think, well, there's no relation to what is happening to my soul or to my sin or to my prayers. But all these things are happening in my life. That God does prepare. I know well from when the Lord began with me, he didn't begin in just one front. He didn't give me just a desire for the things of God and to seek those things. He began to work in the things that I was doing in the world, my pursuits, my enjoyments, the choirs, the orchestras, the bands, the things I was involved in, with much social uh, interaction that was with them the annual event at, at Melbourne with the St David's Day celebrations, roars with the choir, 40 strong male choir, ballroom dancing, all the eats laid on. It was a high society thing up in Melbourne. Those are the type of things I was doing. And the Lord put a blight on them all. I couldn't see the relationship between what the Lord was working in my own soul and desire for the things of God with that, I just could not enjoy those things anymore and I couldn't work myself out. Why didn't I like those things that I once loved? And yet the Lord was working in those two ways. They have the words of Solomon, Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And that is, the world is vanity, is vain, is empty, but we don't see it by nature. But when the Lord begins to touch it, begins to work in our hearts, then we begin to see it. But quite often we don't see the real reason. Might think the Lord is not answering our prayers. Might think that all these things even are against us. That's what dear Jacob says. And yet he was leading up to real blessing of having uh, Joseph in Egypt and a wonderful provision, ongoing provision. But he says all these things are against me. You might be feeling the same, walking in the same way. But remember, when we look at accounts like this, that here is a, an account of a day, you might say, on Mount Carmel. But prior to that day is three and a half years of preparation. 
And the Lord knows how to prepare us to receive his word, to prepare us to see things, to hear things, to do things that we would not otherwise have done except for that preparation. Many times in the word that we have used of this, we have even in David and Goliath. Why didn't, why wasn't David brought first to be in Israel? The Lord knew where he was. He knew that he would be the one that he'd deliver uh, Israel out of the Philistines' hand, that he would slay Goliath. Why didn't he send him first? Why wait 40 days? 40 days is a testing time. It had to be proved there was none other one in Israel. Saul couldn't, no one, no one at all, except when the Lord sent David. And what a reminder that is, that there is no salvation except in David's greatest son, our Lord Jesus Christ. But first, other men must be exhausted first. They must be laid aside, like with Boaz and Ruth. There is a kinsman nearer than I. He must be dealt with first. He must be made sure he cannot redeem you. Then I will redeem you. And the same with the way God works with his children, that it is first shown that their flesh, no man, none other can save but Christ alone. And he prepares the heart, just like the husbandman would prepare the ground before he puts in the seed. So the Lord does the same. How much preparation is the Lord doing in your heart and mine, your life and mine? There's another reason for this time, this gathering on Mount Carmel. And that was that Israel were God's people. If they weren't, he would have just let them go. Let them go to their idols. But they were his people. They were the people that he'd given the promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, Israel. And so he didn't let them go. There's a wonderful encouragement here. The Lord will not let his people go. His chosen, his redeemed people, his saved people. We know from Paul's writings that not all they of Israel are of Israel. Just because they're Abraham's seed doesn't mean that they are saved amongst the elect. But they were his ancient people, a covenant people. Not all of them saved by any means. But because they were as a nation they were given these blessings, and God's chosen people spiritually as well. He will never forsake them. He will chasten them, he will correct them, he will reprove them, but he will bring them back to himself. He's a jealous God and he won't allow them to go hand in hand with the world and go away from him. He will bring back his people. It's like a good shepherd. When the sheep wander, they go away. He doesn't just say, well, just let them go away. That's only just one or two. I've got plenty left. He'll go after them. God is going after his people here. He'll bring them back. Later on, though Elijah felt he was the only one left, the Lord had reserved him 7,000 in Israel that had not bowed the knee unto Baal. 
I'm to look then with the Lord's helm. There are three main points this evening. Firstly, seven contrasts that I want to highlight in this account, leading up and part of our text. And then secondly, an incentive to continue in prayer and watching in the same. Specifically, in the words of our text, go again seven times. And thirdly, an application beyond prayer, where this word, go again, especially go again, may apply to other things in our lives as well. May the Lord direct it aright this evening to one who knows where they must go again. But firstly, we have seven contrasts. The Lord often uses contrast in teaching. You know what a contrast is? You have a white sheet of paper, you put something white on it, there is no contrast, it's hard to see it. If you put something black on it, the contrast is great and you can see it. You can very clearly see it. And it's the same with today's things in the computer screen. There's no contrast. You can't really see what is on the screen. If you increase the contrast, then you can see it. And it's in that way that the Lord often works with contrast. He pictures in the parables very often like the two that went up to the temple to pray. There is the Pharisee. He is praying with himself. He is giving thanks to God for all that he is. He's full of pride. He doesn't ask anything at all. And then we see the publican who cannot even look up to heaven, beating upon his breast, God be merciful to me, a sinner. What a contrast. Two very different characters, very different prayers. And by that the Lord shows us what is a real prayer, what is the one, like he says, went down to his house justified rather than the other. As in that way, notice as you look through our Lord's teaching how many times he uses contrast, two things, not just one. Even in the parable of the shepherd, he's speaking of those shepherds whose own the sheep are not, who leave the sheep. And then he speaks of the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Even at the cross we see the contrast. Our Lord in the centre and the two thieves. And we see the difference that was wrought between them. We indeed justly, we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And the other, he was saying, save thyself and us, if thou be the Christ. Right there at Calvary. So here we have as well seven contrasts. Firstly we have Baal and the true and living God. Baal is a God that was made. Men had made it. Men had formed it. And then we have the true and living God that made the heavens and the earth and all things that are in them. 
What a contrast that there is. Many times through the scriptures, in Isaiah we have it, with the workman that taketh a tree, he uses part to burn in the fire, and then part he makes a god. He bows down to it. Men like idols, because you can make it say what you want them to say. You can make them see what you want them to see. They can't ever reprove you. There's just a servant. What a contrast to the true and the living God who you cannot escape this, his sight. You cannot deceive him. He knows the heart. He doesn't only know the outside but inside. What a difference between an idol and the true and living God. We read in the word that the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from under the heavens and the earth. Then we have the contrast of the sacrifice. We had two altars there. One was a dry one, with no fire under, and the other one was a wet one. No fire under. What a contrast between those two altars. They were looking at a fire to be kindled. And yet when we look at the altar where the fire was kindled and where the fire did come from heaven, it looks so impossible. And it was by the Lord's command, it was made to be so impossible. We might look, if the Lord is going to give us the sign and evidence that he is God, a true God, that he has turned our hearts back again, you wouldn't think that the way that that was to be proved is in the picture of this altar that is sodden and dripping and showing nothing like ever that there would be any kindling of fire there. You think of some of the cases our Lord healed and showed his power in the scriptures. You think of the woman with the issue of blood 12 years. She tried all the physicians, suffered much at their hand. If ever there was a case where there was a sodden altar or so wet, so impossible, so unlikely that there should be any healing, it was her. Yet she comes to the Lord and immediately she is healed. How many things in our lives do we think, well, if the Lord is going to work, it will be in a gradual, gradual way. It won't be bringing it to absolute impossibility. And then he'll work, and then he's saved, and then he'll show his hand. But that is how it's set forth. You think of the children of Israel. Nine signs and wonders. They still are not out of Egypt. Impossible. Can never get free from Egypt. Look at all what's happened. And you might be looking at your life and your prayers and your attachment to the world and the world's hold over you. And you think, Judgments nor mercies, neck can sway my roving heart to wisdom's way. I'm still held as much as what I was when the Lord was working all these things. What will be needed to bring me out? 
As soon as the blood is shed, out they go. The emphasis on the blood, nothing but thy blood, O Jesus. And yet at first it proved as impossible and then immediately afterwards they come to the Red Sea. The Red Sea in front, the mountains behind and each side and Egypt behind them, again impossible. Just like that wet altar as it were, in a position you think, well, it doesn't, how could the Lord appear in this? What can he do in this? And yet he opens the way through that water, through the Red Sea. And so we have the contrast of these two altars. Which one would be most likely to catch fire, as it were? The dry one, of course. But the one that does is the wet one. The one is the one that is naturally impossible and it's then more clearly seen that it was the Lord's work and not man's work. Now often the Lord does that. Remember Gideon brought down his army to 300 men. Why? So that they did not take the glory to themselves so that God had the glory. And it was brought down first to be as if how could they ever accomplish the victory over the Midianites with such a few men. So we have here this contrast, the wet sacrifice, the dry sacrifice. But then we have the contrast of the prophets. Elijah is very clear to highlight this. And he says that ye are many your prophets, so many, hundreds of them. He says in verse 22, I, even I only remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Surely the weight of truth and right is on the side of numbers. No, it is not on Elijah's side never be discouraged when you're outnumbered when there's hundreds on Baal's side you might think only one on yours but Elijah had God on his side he had the truth on his side and all these things that he was doing was at God's command even we might say highlighting these contrasts bringing them about, being the Lord's servant, the Lord's messenger in these things. The Lord's people will always be a remnant, as it were. The Lord help us not to be ashamed of him or discouraged by being in the minority. Then there's another contrast. An unwilling people and a willing people. You might say at first they were willing to, the children of Israel, to have the prophets of Baal alive and to be with them. But later on, 
they were willing to take those same prophets and destroy them, to get rid of them. Now we might have idols in our heart, unwilling to get rid of them. But the Lord knows how to make us willing. We read, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. And what made these people willing? That's another contrast. That was the altar that the fire fell upon. It didn't fall upon Israel, who had willingly gone after the false prophets. It didn't fall upon the false prophets. It fell upon the altar. And it is a beautiful time of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That is what the altar and the sacrifice and everything sets forth. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fire from heaven, it must have been a tremendous sight. Some of you may have seen uh, videos of when lightning has fallen from heaven and the bolt of lightning comes down and the strength of the fire and that which it hits, it is an amazing sight. And that must have been amazing for the children of Israel to see the fire come down on that altar and completely consume it. The noise would have been tremendous. The sight, the light would have been tremendous. It's hard for us to really picture it. And yet when we think this was what was setting forth the great antitype of Christ upon the cross and the wrath of God falling upon him and not on his people. In Psalm 80 we have, Let thy hand be upon the man at thy right hand, the son of man whom thou madest strong for thyself. The wrath of God on that substitutionary offering, like Isaac being taken off the altar, viewing the ram put in his place and then the fire consuming the ram instead of him. The children of Israel saw this. What a contrast that that should be. It may ever be a wonder to us as we view Calvary, as we view it in the uh, elements of the Lord's Supper, that here is a reminder that it is the Son of God that the wrath of God fell upon instead of his people. A sacrifice acceptable unto God, a propitiation, a wrath-ending sacrifice. And what was said here? that they may know that God hath turned your hearts back again. Those that view our Lord Jesus Christ suffering instead of them, when they know what they deserve, they can know that God has turned their hearts back again because of what he has shown them. Their eyes shall look upon him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him. And so we have the contrast where where that fire fell, where the wrath of God fell. Then we have a contrast in the prayers that are made by Elijah. For the fire, we have him praying once, and we're told the words that he uses. We're given his whole prayer. 
And he just prayed and the fire descended from heaven. But then they needed rain. They need the, the benefits and the blessings that were to flow from the wrath of God being turned away from them. And so he must pray again. And this time in the words of our text, it is not just once, but to go again seven times. Two occasions of prayer. Very, very different. How many times God's children may feel, well, I did pray but once for this thing and the Lord answered straight away. But I have something else and it may be linked with that other thing. And I prayed and prayed and prayed and the Lord has not answered me. You have that contrast in your life too. The same is what Elijah had here. Then we have a last contrast that I draw your attention to. And that is what the servant came and that he said. He came back and he, he said that there riseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. That's all, just a little cloud. But Elijah, he says, Go up, say unto Ahab, prepare thy chariot, get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. And then we have the picture that the heaven was black with clouds and wind. There was a great rain. A little cloud. How would anyone link that with a great storm? You know, if you're out on the sea, if you're out sailing and you saw this little cloud come up, would you read into that, that in a moment that would be a, a great heavy storm? How often the beginnings of a blessing begin small. In Ezra we read that the Lord may give us a little reviving in our bondage. And little revivings, they lead to big revivings. We think of our Lord. So small a babe, as one of the hymns says, from what beginning small our great salvation rose. And often there is this contrast that when the Lord begins to work, it begins in a very small and gentle way. But Elijah here, he recognised it. This was what he had been praying for. This was what he'd been looking for and this was what the Lord would do and he knew it wouldn't just stop at something small, it would be exactly what he prayed for and asked for. And yet what a difference between the beginnings of it and the end of it. We are warned in scripture, we are not to despise the day of small things. We're not to. We are to be encouraged in small things. We are not to cast away our confidence which hath great recompense of reward. If that confidence is based on the Lord and his work and what he will do, we are not to cast that away. Has the Lord given you contrast in your life already? 
May we help through them. Help to see more clearly his work. You think of Psalm 107. Again and again it happened with them. In their troubles and they fell down, there was none to help. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their stresses. Back again, give praise and thanks unto God, oh that man would. But then next minute down again into the depths. And then to cry again unto the Lord and the Lord delivered and saved them right through that psalm. All the time, these ups and downs, the day of adversity, of the day of prosperity, trials and darkness and then light. And at the end, whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. They that know no changes fear not God. You and I, the people of the Lord, will have changes and things will be in our lives, we won't stay on an even keel, and everything goes smoothly and right all the time. But the Lord will be dealing with us, and will be dealing with contrasts, and dealing with changes, and in all these things, in all their exercise and burdens, he will work his salvation, and work in our hearts to his honour and glory. He which hath begun a good work in you, will perform it unto the day, of Jesus Christ. So firstly, seven contrasts. Secondly, an incentive to continue in prayer. The words of our text, go again, go again seven times. And the servant is watching. Elijah is praying. Prayer and watching, those two go together and it is to continue in prayer and watching the same with thanksgiving. How often the epistles there is exhorted to continue in prayer and our Lord he told the parable of the widow that the unjust judge wouldn't Adventure, he says, but because of her continual coming, I will avenge her of her adversary. Importunate prayer, going again and again and again. We know this truth, don't we? But when it's put into practice, when we are discouraged, when we don't have an answer straight away, do we think of it then? Do we remember it then? There's a reason for it. And this isn't just confined to the Old Testament. Our Lord, enforcing upon the necessity of it, telling the parables to that end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, looking again and again. Now this is the only thing you and I take away from the word tonight to continue in prayer, to still pray. The Lord knows what it is, that your burden and your cry and what you're praying over, what you're watching over the Lord for, to appear for you and to do for you. And the Lord knows your readiness to give up, your discouragement. He knows your sorrows, your distresses. 
May the word this evening be a word to you to go again. And you know it doesn't specifically mean seven times. No doubt here it was seven times. Seven in scripture is a complete number. It's a perfect number. And the Lord will have us to go and pray for that number of times that he is determined. This word is a, a special word to me. Remembering it is in my early 20s and seeking the Lord. It was one particular Easter and I had much studies to do, many things to do. The Lord gave me such a desire, such a longing for his blessing and I tried to pray and pray for it. And on the Saturday, uh, I got no answers at all. And I thought, well, I had things that I had to do out in the garden and I was planning on renovating this rock pool I had and to getting a wire brush and scraping it out. And so very despondent, leaving the throne of grace, going out into the garden. And I put one stroke on that concrete and a bit of that concrete got up into my eye. And I left the pool, I went into the bathroom and tried to wash it out. And it wouldn't go out, the grit was in my eye. And this word came to mind. Firstly, it was go and pray. Go and pray about it. So I went and knelt by my bed and prayed about this. The Lord would take away this out of my eye. I went back and tried to wash it out again and still it was there. And then this word came, go again, seven times. I went back to the bedroom again. And as I knelt and cried to the Lord, the Lord drew near and said, bless my soul. And the tears flowed. And you know, the tears just washed the grit out of my eye. But I had the blessing. And the Lord knew, he knew what I desired. And he knew with a heavy heart that I'd gone back to my work. And brought me back in straight away. Brought me back to prayer. And brought me to continue in prayer. Didn't have to go seven times. So you might say twice. But it was to go again. And that especially is on my spirit tonight. Go again. Still pray. We'll sing a bit in our last hymn. Still pray. For God will all explain. Nor shalt thou seek his face in vain. I want to then look in the last place at an application beyond prayer. Go again. What about going to hear the word preached? We might think, well, we'll go and hear. We'll go and listen to the word preached. And you're in expectation the Lord will bless you and favour you. But he doesn't. But what an encouragement. Go again. Go and hear again. Go and visit again. 
And what a blessing it is if we have ventured once and the Lord has blessed us and that has made us go again. Remember one such time, special service at Tunbridge Wells and the children were small and they were lying on the farm down in Tenterton. My dear one and I, we went to hear what we thought was going to be Robert Field and we got into the service. We were only going to go to one service of the two special services. We sat down, we were slightly late coming in, and, and we thought, well, that, that's not Robert in the pulpit. Now, Seth Mercer. And Robert had taken ill, and Seth Mercer had come, and when he had been phoned up, the word had dropped in that... Uh, the Lord would have him to bring, hear him, I, send me, and he preached from that. And in a way, he preached us from Australia to here, and it was so encouraging, it was such a blessing to us after that service. We phoned up those who had the children and said, can you keep those children? We're going back for the second service, the evening service. And those are special times when the Lord so blesses the word that you want to go again and you want to hear again. It's wet your appetite. You've heard the Lord speaking in it and the Lord's helped you and you go again. There's nothing really that will encourage us in the throne of grace. If we found answers to prayer, you want to go again. <coughs> If you've been reading the word of God and your Lord's met you there and blessed you there, you want to go again to that word. Those places, the writer says, dost thou mind the place where Jesus did thee meet? And you go again to those places because of what they mean. You know, Bethel, Jacob was brought again to Bethel. Where is the God of Bethel? The house of God. Why? God had blessed him there. And he made that place special. So he went again there. It's a blessed thing if the Lord makes our homes a blessing. Bethel, if he makes the house of God, a particular place of worship, a blessing, a Bethel to our souls. Go again. Another aspect of looking at this is evangelism. We are as stewards of the word of God, to go into all the world, to preach the gospel to every creature, to make the word of God known in the area where we are. We have the Bibles out here. Uh, several times we leaflet the town, and there seems to be no effect, no witness at all. Times that we've spoken with neighbours, and you think, what good is it? There's no blessing, there's no help that's following. Is go again. You cannot tell what will prosper this or that. Give a portion to seven, also to eight. And ask what shall prosper. And so it is to be encouraged in giving the word, in speaking the word, in being a witness, salt and light to the Lord. Another time, another aspect, maybe completely in a providential matter. Remember where, how I got my apprenticeship in engineering and I had applied to the steel mill 
And they had rejected me because of a heart murmur and several other things. And I think the, the medical man there, he saw I wouldn't fit in to the rough people that were there. I was 16 at the time, a four-year apprenticeship. But how it was found out that I'd been rejected was in a way that they gave me a second opportunity. As long as I got an angiogram and sorted my heart out, so I had to go in the hospital three days for that. And in the meantime, I saw an advert for a job in a hospital as a maintenance engineer, as apprenticeship. And I applied for that. And my heart was towards that instead of the steel mill. And I wanted that position. But then I noticed that they'd advertised it again. And they hadn't given me an opportunity uh, to, to meet them, to have an interview. So I promptly rang up the hospital and I said, excuse me, I said, I applied for this job, I want this job, you haven't asked for an interview, why? And they said to me, well, you live too far away. But what they didn't know, and they muddled up where I lived and where my school was. I was 10 miles away from the hospital one way, and the school where I attended was 10 miles the other way, so they thought it was 20 miles away. When they found out they'd made a mistake and it was only 10 miles, then they said, well, come in for an interview. So I came in for an interview. No one else applied for that second time they advertised. But if I'd have kept quiet, I'd never gotten that job. And that job that was a, a, a special link and provision for me, <coughs> So it was right that I should go again and approach it again, not just leave it go. The next year, when they applied for a plumber, an electrician apprentice, they had 118 applications for each position. And it was a wonderful contrast to me, a wonderful provision for me. And there are some times we must just let something go and we cannot follow it up, but there are other times it is go again. And the Lord knows when those times are, when to move, when to stay, when to pursue a matter and when to drop it. But we're not to always think, well, if it is of the Lord, then, I mean, I could have said it was in those days, it was days of my unregeneracy. I did not know the Lord then. But I could have said, well, the way's been stopped up, I'm not going to force it. But the Lord gave me at that time that desire to, to go again and to follow it up. And the proving of it, it was of the Lord. And so you may fill in as well your own application to this word, not just limited to prayer, not even to the examples that I put, but in your path in providence the Lord knows what you're going through go again go again well, may the Lord bless his word and may we truly know that <coughs> our hearts are turned back again our hearts are turned to the Lord and that we are blessed through the Lord's dealings with us to know something of what is set before us in the word such as here but the word comes where we are. The Lord brings it where we are and applies it. And to have this persuasion, Thou God seest me, Thou has known my heart, 
has brought thy word for me this evening. May the Lord bless it thus. Amen.